Hello, hello. Welcome to Words and Voices, a little sanctuary, a quiet nook where you'll hear hard, raw, and humbling conversations with some of the best humans elevating humanity. This is for the round pegs and square holes, the misfits, oddballs, weirdos, tinkerers, and thinkers who dig a simple philosophy that one word, one message, one idea, and one voice can change the world. So, without further ado, here's our chief mischief maker, Neelam Tawar. Hello, hello. Welcome to Words and Voices. It's Neelam Tawar here. And today I've got with me Antonio Del Girice, who is an entrepreneur, investor, financial expert, and a lifestyle design coach to ultra high net worth individuals around the world. He's also the founder of the Alban Group of Companies, and they are a boutique impact focused global firm that partner with ultra high net worth individuals, family offices, banks, real money investors, and many, many other investment firms in the areas of capital raising and global advisory, portfolio design and monitoring, and financial analysis. The Alban Group of Companies has operations in Italy, the UAE, and Luxembourg, and the UK. Antonio, who's with us today, his zone of genius originates from over a decade of specialized experience in financial markets, structured products, investment banking, fintech, RAFE, SIF funds, healthcare receivables, and wealth management. And they also cover at their boutique firm, private funds and capital raising. What is cool about Antonio is he's also an investor in fintech startups and why I loved and definitely needed to have him on the show was because his path and mine crossed in a nomadic community. Everything in my world is online. And it was kind of cool because at first blush, I was like, I probably don't have much in common with him. And it turns out as we started conversing and connecting, I heard about how he thinks and his influences in life. This gentleman has studied philosophers even Stoics as well. And what you'll hear in the next hour or so is his thoughts on how he makes decisions, what wealth means in the the world that we live in right now, what is the meaning of life even at times, right? And he's coming to us from the perspective of sharing this wonderful thought around whatever you do, you know, be an artisan. It doesn't matter what you're creating, be an artisan at that, be specialized in in that particular thing. It was such a pleasure to have him here. Uh, We also covered conversations around relationships and how you say no and why it's important to say no. And even more, why is it important to receive those no's? Because those tend to clear our path for the right types of yeses, if you will. I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation. Antonio's wisdom is just humbling. And I know for a fact that anyone who listens to him through and through will learn so much in just the way he thinks. And the way he's contributing to the world right now is he is working on projects that are extremely curated, that will even affect economies, potentially industries like even healthcare around the world. So I really, really hope you enjoy listening to him and Feel free to follow him on his website, which is antoniodelgiliche.me, or his company website, which is benial.ae, E-E-N-I-A-L.ae, or you can write to him at info at adg.me. You're going to love this. I really hope you get something amazing out of 
this conversation. And please, please let us know what resonates. We're always looking to hear from our listeners. <laughs> and uh, hearing from you means a lot to us. So without further ado, here we go. Hey, Antonio, how's it going? Hello. Hi, Neelam. Everything is great here. What about you? Not too bad. I mean, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, you and I always joke, or at least I joke, that if I ever saw you in a crowded space, you would be the last person I would approach and say hi to. Yeah, you actually mentioned this a uh, few times. I don't know how to take it, but uh, I guess I'll take it in a good way. Yeah, because I have to say that the way we've kind of hung out, we've met through this nomadic community, and we have so much in common that I, I always believe this commonality with people that look different than each other. But the reason why I say what I say before anyone who's listening to this and thinks I'm like super judgmental <laughs> is that is this thing about like the worlds you and I play in a little bit, right? I'm in this consulting world and you come across as the super finance dude that oh, when I look at you it, in an instant, the first thing I would think about is like Wall Street Journal type, you know, individual trade laced and probably will just throw out numbers at me. And I'm and I joke with you about this too, that I'm a word girl and you are an Excel guy. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes maybe I decide to come across also like that because it's a bit of a comfort zone. So, I mean, I know that if I do the finance type or if I come across as that, I know how to play that game. And uh, I don't know, it's my the face that I'm very comfortable in showing. But of course, like in any person, there is many facets, right? Many different aspects. And I think the, the way we met through this uh, global nomadic community, it's also a place where, you know, other aspects of our personalities can come across. That is awesome. And so speaking about discomfort, I think we do some really cool stuff in the world, right? I always found that fascinating in our conversation was when you said something along the lines of like, yeah, even when I was in finance, it wasn't so much about money for me. That was not the thing that moved me. So speaking of discomfort and that phase of your life, how has that kind of played out for you? Sometimes we are able to see how the game is playing, right? Or how the game is supposed to be played in whatever thing we do. And we get to a point where we can actually decide whether we want to play that game or we just want to understand the game and maybe try to do our own way outside that game. Because I think a lot of people are very good at playing the game. So they get the corporate job, go to the gym during lunch break. They have very conventional relationship lives. And they really thrive in that. And they can really make the right moves. Some people are very good at it. Some are maybe less successful at it but they still play the game at some level. What I felt for me, I really tried at some point in my life to play that game because I saw that many people around me were actually playing that game, were successful at it. They were getting the good money, the good recognition, the good promotions and stuff like that. So I said, okay, let's try to do that. Let's play that game. But then I had in my mind that, you know, after doing that and seeing that maybe I wasn't getting ahead as I wanted, 
I said, yeah, you know what? Maybe it's just really the game that is not my thing. And maybe I should start thinking differently on how to do things and do it my own way. And, and of course, when, when you start thinking like that, you have massive resistance from the system because the system, the last thing they, whomever they are, the last thing they want is you to start off and, you know, piercing the, the bubble, right? Because when people see that you can pierce the bubble or even that you want pierce the bubble, they will just look at you like, hey, what are you doing? You know, it's similar to the matrix, right? When something weird happens, you know, all the agents will start looking at you and in real life, they will start telling you, why do you want to do that? You have so many things right now. You're getting this amount of money. You're getting this amount of comfort and you're going to hurt a lot of people if you do this. And why would you want to do that? And uh, yeah, they will try to keep you inside the game. And I'm not saying that everybody should go out and do crazy things. But I think that if someone after years of trying to fit, you know, they don't fit and doesn't work for them, maybe try to think lateral about different ways of making things happen. So what was your point of discomfort there to make that decision to break out of the system, quote unquote? Was it something someone said? Was it a feeling? Was it you're just standing at the corner of some street and you're like, I'm not doing this, I'm, I'm out? I think it was a bit of a matter of speed. So I could see that the speed at which things were going at work, for instance, professionally, were not the, the speed that I wanted. And I was in this meeting room. You know, in the previous days, I had to make a decision that basically was above my pay grade. And, and let's say that uh, this decision was not really liked by the financial regulator. It was something to protect my company and also protect final investors. It, because it was some kind of snowballing situation in which either you do something that is not really super legit right now, or if you wait one day, it's going to snowball and it's going to be so much problems for not just for us as a financial institutions, but also for the final clients. But the thing is that to do that, we needed to basically pull out a price from a market. And this is something you can't do. And we know everybody who is in charge or involved, they know they can't really do. But um, at some point, we managed to do it. And so I'm in this meeting room and of course there is a bit of a trial, you know, saying, okay, who decided to do that and how is that and blah, blah, blah. And so I really understood that I made this decision above my pay grade in a sort of uh, cowboy kind of way, right? So I'm thinking, what am I doing? Am I becoming like a cowboy that I make these decisions and do this and just, you know, doesn't matter if someone gets pissed or consequences and stuff like that. So at that point, and I realized that this situation and also other situations were actually showing me that I was growing a bit outside the little square that I was assigned. So there was this 
there was a bit of insubordination, like in another situation with another boss, the guy told me, you know, I started raising voice with the boss of my boss. And he told me, if you keep on raising your voice, I will have to leave the room and it will have bad consequences, right? So I was becoming a bit insubordinate, a bit restless, a bit cowboy-like. And considering how financial institutions and the banks are moving now, this is absolutely not tolerable. Maybe 10 years ago, it was even like something good. Like if you are a top producer and you, you can do whatever you want. But right now, it's not really like that. The trend is absolutely towards process, more towards personalities or entrepreneurship in big institutions, right? So I could see that there was really like a big gap that was getting wider between what I was supposed to do and what I actually wanted to do. And so this created a lot of frustrations and that's it. And, uh, you know, because of that, also because of other minor things, but, you know, it all sums up. I decided to, you know, to quit the corporate job without really having a, a big idea of what to do after. I had many ideas. I think the main ideas that I had didn't actually materialize and I ended up doing something else. But I think that was the moment. The conflicts that I, I could see that were brewing, right, were symptoms of a big malaise. Yeah, I find that so interesting because we've never, ever talked about, because it's always a string, right? Like it's a string of things happening. And then one stays in your mind as if this was the thing that made it change for you. But really, there's always been an undercurrent because you were probably already observing it. There was some sort of internal dialogue happening. And then it just took this moment, that tipping point where you kind of had to make the choice of, do I go back into that thing? Or do I just say, F this, I'm out of here and I will figure something out. And to go with that, so we talked about the professional bit, right? What was happening sort of from a, from a psychological standpoint for you as an individual? Because I came from corporate too. I did something similar to this. I, I mean, I didn't raise my voice, of course. I didn't have that. But because my way of reacting is usually keeping it to myself because when I want to express myself, the words will not come out. I can do it in writing, but I won't be able to like really, truly express myself in, uh, in words. But I wonder what was that internal conflict because it's not very easy to have, you know, that six, seven-figure income and this predictability that, hey, everything's taken care of. I just have to go in there every day and do my bit to transitioning into like, yo, I don't know which direction I'm going in. Same with me. And the second part was, where is this thing going to come from? So what was that? What was that psycho, like the psyche of what was going on in your brain? Like, you know, there's always self-doubt. There's always questions in your mind. Like, what will I do? What will happen? Like this feeling of like you will be floating for a while. Did, yeah. you, did you go through some of that internal debate as well? Okay, yes. There was a lot of internal debate. What I tried to do is when I was still working, I tried to experiment a bit. Like, for instance, there was a software that a colleague of mine and I wanted to deploy to our clients. So at some point, we decided to completely fake it. So to create like a very nice PowerPoint presentation or brochure, like the screenshots of this software that would have helped a lot our business, right? So the idea was like, okay, we get out and uh, we start doing this software thing for our clients, right? So we faked all this, we prepare all this, 
we went to our clients and, you know, essentially to make sure we completely bombed because people were not interested in that. And the few people who were actually interested in that were willing to pay peanuts for it. So this was actually very good because this gave me a lot of perspective as in, okay, if we get this out and we invest hundreds of thousands of euros on this, we will bomb. But instead to make this presentation cost us like 2000. So it's good. It's a good, good early failure. So basically just to tell you about the psyche, actually this feedback mechanism, it kind of showed me that there was an alternative way, but I still needed to find it, you know? So it was like, I don't have it, but I can try and see it. I don't think there was like a massive struggle internally, but I think that's also because, you know, my parents, when growing up, you know, they really supported me in the sense of telling me, okay, do whatever you want. I mean, you know. I think like after high school, you know, during like early years of high school, high school, I started going very, very bad at school. So I had a lot of spotlight on me for that. But then I started going well and my parents were still caring about what I was doing. But then I told them, look, if I go well, it's cool. Just done. I don't want any interference on what I'm doing. And I think that set the pace for everything that happened later. So when I decided to quit my permanent job in Italy to accept an internship in London in a field that I absolutely didn't know, or when I decided to leave my super corporate job to do, I don't know what, you know, entrepreneurial life, or when I decided to get married or when I decided to get divorced, you know, all my parents ever told me is like, okay, you know best, we don't understand what you want to do or why you do things. Says <laughs> I don't know, like a black box, but whatever you want to do, do it. And uh, you know best and it's going to work out. And that's what they always told me. So they never actually told me do this or do that. So I think this is constantly in my mind in the sense of I can actually do whatever I want. I can. And what I'm doing right now is direct a direct consequences of my choices in the past. Nobody else's. This is exactly where I want to be, given the choices I made in the past. Of course, a lot of freedom and uh, a lot of uh, responsibility. Because you have to do it all on your own, more or less, right? Because before you have structure, you have certain things you don't have to worry about. Here, you have to always kind of not just be thinking about yourself, but the people that work with you, for you, around you, and ensuring that they're on point with your vision. I will say one thing, though, like, you know, it's interesting you talk about your parents, because I think it's a kind of education in life, really, more than education, education. So somewhere having that kind of support, whether it's said or unsaid, and there's no no real judgment in, in you trying to experiment, and using failure or something that doesn't work out is just a feedback mechanism. It's nothing usually more than that. Something doesn't work out, feedback. Something works out, feedback, right? And it seems to me that that's kind of the place that you always net out it, but it's also how your brain functions, by the way. <laughs> so Definitely. So, so it does help. You know, you have made that shift from being this quintessential 
kind of that very structured way of being, right? When you're in the finance world and now you're marrying it with all these other things that you are, right? Like you you do want to go out there and help more people. You do want people to understand that, hey, you can build something that's more precious and more uh, sustainable, but also even more fulfilling. And you're making this transition into, well, I don't even know if it's transition, it's more like an assimilation at this point. How do you feel about the finance part of you, like one part of your brain merging with like this part of you, which is trying to connect with people? How do you merge these things? And maybe you can go into this idea of even when you work in finance, like in in a financial project, because I know you do capital raising, you do portfolio management, you do all these like this world that you play in that I am like, I'm not even close to. We're not talking about raising small amount of capital. We're talking about high six, seven, high seven, even eight figure projects, which will help certain countries shift the way they do certain things. How do you make that choice? Like, how do you think about those things? I think there is an element which is important. I mean, for me, finance is a lot of creativity. So when I think about finance, I know that for a lot of people might not be like that. And also based on what you said, I don't think for you, the first word coming into mind when thinking about finance is creativity. But for me, it's really about, you know, when I was at the beginning and I was trying to describe what I do or when I try to describe to people what I do for a living and I want to be a bit poetic, I say, you know, basically I make money out of Word and Excel. And this is basically it. So what I love is the idea that you can create wealth or better, you can transfer wealth, but also expand wealth without anything really tangible. And also talking with my former colleagues, when you see someone in finance hating his job, what they hate is the fact that is not real, that is not material, right? There is no stuff moving or stuff being transformed that is just money. But for me, this is the beauty of it. The beauty is essentially that there's really nothing real, but it can have massive implications on people's lives. So when you create derivatives or securitizations, you know, these very ethereal financial constructs, I see, first of all, freedom to do really whatever you want. Basically, it just can be like a dream, you know? It's just you build something out of thin air and formulas and waterfalls and, uh, you know, concepts, right? But then when you put X amount of money and you get 2X amount of money or you get a different amount of money, then the money actually has an impact on what you do. And especially, you know, in the project that you're working on, on healthcare, down the road, you can really see the impact in people's lives. But of course, when I describe the whole project and the securities and stuff like that, it's all very, very theoretical and abstract. But I I really like that aspect, actually. It kind of feeds into what you were saying earlier as well, right? Because what you're doing really is you're playing the long game, right? Mm -hmm. You're playing in the future. And perhaps even now, you might be facing moments where when you're describing what you do, maybe not everyone gets it, 
how does that feel really more than anything else when you're trying to explain the impact of something that hey this could potentially change or revolutionize something this particular project this is why we're doing it this is why we're running to get x amount invested in this project or whatever it is that moves you to do this work but how does it feel like when you're explaining it to somebody and they're just not quite there yet even though they're successful they understand the tangible bits of course the tactical bits mm-hmm. and they're not able to get on board with the vision i guess sometimes it's tough to explain or basically convince something that they can be part of something huge that can change other people's lives but also their lives because by definition everything that is enormous it's outside of the ordinary right so i don't think well <laughs> Okay maybe there is humans on earth who are used to have huge impact in whatever they do but <laughs> this is not generally not the people I I talk with meaning that sometimes we are so focused with our day to day and our let's say little lives then we can't think of something that is going to be able to change tens of thousands of people's lives or even something that is able to change our lives massively because of course if you are part of of a big big project you can also change your life dramatically also economically of course but this i can really see that there are some people but there are very few and apart that when you talk about an opportunity they will just see through it and just see the end of it and you can see they're immediately sold so it really takes to some people 10 minutes to understand the impact down the line it can take months to see all the details but some people is really able in 10 minutes to understand okay this is a life changing opportunity i want to be part of it these people are rare and actually they're in my experience they're quite inex- unexpected meaning sometimes you, you see people with ordinary lives it happened to me a couple of times in my life ordinary people ordinary lives employees normal very structured life when you get to them you explain the thing and they see it and when they see it they are sold already i feel the same way about you actually <laughs> i do because i think i tend to always gravitate toward people who have some sort of depth and i don't know whether it's curiosity or just being this kid who always was in her own world reading books in the middle of like a small little city in africa i didn't even have access to books you know because we were a little remote where we were but i think i've always gravitated to people who are very quiet because i think their minds speak like volumes and when you hear how people articulate things and how they talk about their own lives and journey you can really lean into what they hold valuable and those surprises are the best because like i said yes i would not say hi to you in a crowded space but if i was introduced to you i'm sure you and i would have like a really long ass conversation about all kinds of things Mm-hmm. Those are the precious moments, right? Because at baseline, I think we have more in common than we think we do. 
usually. And it becomes, as we get more involved in the work we do, and we're stepping, again, it's, it's sort of like stepping over a ladder, right? Like we're going to the next level, next level, next level. It becomes even more important to have the right people around us because there's this concept I talk about quite a bit that I've always said that I'm not worried about being understood because I don't put too much value in that. And I think I would rather be understood by the right people. And that's probably more important. And so to your point, when you say there's that person you talk to for three minutes and he just sees like clearly, he or she sees very clearly like, hey, this is the end target. I want to be a part of this. And if you look at, you know, new age investors, you know, we were talking about Naval Ravi Khan, talked about other people who have kind of gotten in on ideas when they were on Word or Excel. Yeah. And they've made something out of it, right? While creating impact, of course. And now I think more people talk about words like impact and wanting to change things because we all know that the education system and the way we've been taught to do things needs to be unlearned. Yeah, definitely. You know, the world right now is becoming complex and so layered that to be successful, whatever we mean as, uh, you know, successful, but to be able just to navigate the world we live in, I think a certain level of open-mindedness and capacity of solve complex multiplayer situations is required. Yeah. Do you feel that you got in a little early on this enterprise, this entrepreneurship, if you will, versus now? Like, I don't really think about it too much, but I did recently and I was like, wow, if I was in this position right now, I would be so frustrated to even think about leaving a corporate environment. What do you feel about that if you had to do it now? One thing that comes into my mind is this. I think now there is a lot of hype on entrepreneurship and it looks like if you are not an entrepreneur or if you don't have seven passive incomes, it's like, it's not, it's not cool. You, you got to have passive incomes. You got to do that. You got to do this. But, you know, the world, you know, big corporates and also small companies, they always need specialized people who are doing one job very, very, very well. So this whole idea that now to be accomplished in life, you need to become an entrepreneur or you need to follow your passion 24-7, meaning that your passion should be your job. I think this whole thing is getting a bit out of hand. <laughs> you know, I agree I, with I, you. Uh, it looks to me that a lot of people are chasing something that is not possible to be accomplished by a lot of people. And I'm not even sure that it's gonna bring success in the sense of happiness or contentness to a lot of people pursuing them. Because I think a lot of people could be very happy being an accountant and working seven to eight hours, four to five days a week, having their holidays where they completely disconnect from the job because there's nothing they can do when they are on holidays or skiing. And uh, I think a lot of people would be or are very happy doing that. And I think these people, by all means, should just do that. They shouldn't feel pressured to 
follow their passion. I mean, the week and the year and the months are full of moments in which they can follow their passions and do whatever they want with their free time and just give their skills for a salaried work. Uh, there's nothing, nothing bad with it. Nothing. It's seeming like everyone is applying the entrepreneurship bomb on everybody. <laughs> and really not everyone is having the same pain. So you can't really solve it by saying, this is the solution, this is the way out. And I think some people have recognized it and they built for it. But yeah, it's not for everybody. I wouldn't tell everybody to be an entrepreneur. I have friends that would say, don't do it. I know you well enough. Don't do it. You know, and it sounds very contrarian because they're like, why won't you like pitch me like entrepreneurship? And I'm like, no, why should I? Because it's not entrepreneurship for me. It's the way I live. So for me, the baseline was different. For me, the execution is different. For me, the strategy is also different. And who I am matters in all of this. And I don't think what I do is about passion. I get very concerned when people teach things like, hey, follow your passion and don't work a day, like how you said. And I'm thinking, you do realize you'll be working three times harder. Yeah. And you have to be cut out for it as well. Like, I'm not saying entrepreneurs cannot be born either. I'm just saying, before you go, like, go take a bath in that water, maybe dip the toes in, which I think I love that you said earlier as well, where you said that, you went and did that PowerPoint slide or you built something, pitched it. It did not get well. It wasn't well received, but you went and saw what that does to you because it's not so much even about rejection. It's really about going there and, and putting an idea out and seeing what comes back at you and the whatever the cycle that happens or whatever, uh, you know, whatever happens after that is, is the place where the decisions are being made. And being honest with yourself, because I think that's my favorite thing here is that you're very honest with yourself through all of this. You're like, I can't do it this way. I know if I test something, I take the feedback, I can do it another way. And then you're still doing stuff because that's who you are. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a conversation you and I had a, a long time ago where you said something like, you know, I'm on a yacht in like the middle of the water in, I think you were going to Italy then or, or Greece. I, and it was Greece. And Greece. I think you said something. Yeah, it was Greece, right? And it, it stayed with me and you said, but you know, I'm like, it doesn't really matter to me. Like I will be plugged in, but I won't be plugged in, plugged in because I don't differentiate between what people call disconnecting and connecting. One thing that came into my mind when you were talking is about this feedback. What I like to do and what I try to get people who work with me to do is try to get a no, you know, because Sometimes we try not to be very confrontational or when we ask for things and we leave room for people to, you know, like get out and maybe make it easier for everybody. But when we're negotiating or when asking for something, I try to get a no. I mean, what's the point that I can get so that I actually get a no? Can I, how much can I push to get a no, because before getting a no, you will get a lot of the things you want, right? So for instance, like uh, doing a price discovery or asking people to introduce you to other people or these kind of things, like be direct with what you want. People have a tendency to try to make you happy if you ask for something especially if they like you. So ask for a little bit more, ask for even more. And then at that point, you will get a no. Okay, that's where I, you should stop. But if you stopped yourself short at the beginning, you would have never gotten 
that far. For instance, in the experiment of trying to sell this product, something like, oh, yeah, you like it? Oh, okay, fine. I think you should get this package for 50,000 uh, euros and uh, a year. And the guy would say, yeah, we could do that. And like, yeah, okay. So can you sign this right now saying that you want it? And then you get the no, right? It's like, ah, so you can't sign it right now. Why is that? Why don't you want it? And then basically by pushing to the no, you actually see if the thing makes sense or not, or if it's just your idea. Because also the thing, good people can have bad ideas. Good people can make huge mistakes. So the fact that you have an idea that in hindsight is bad doesn't make you a bad person. Whatever bad happens has nothing to do with the person. So the fact that you fail, the fact that something doesn't go as planned doesn't say anything about you. And this is a very important thing too. Also when dealing with people and dealing with the team. And no is such a difficult word for many people, isn't it? So whether you have to say it or you have to receive it, it's a very difficult word both ways. And I think you have to change the attachment and the meaning to the no because a no really means a no could mean no right now, no forever. But really no is a starting point. I used to have a friend in sales who would say no is the starting point of the conversation. That's good. (laughs) And he was not being optimistic. He was like, that's when you can actually see for yourself whether everything that preceded the no was actually in line with what they were saying earlier. Correct. 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 The no is also extremely liberating because it's freeing up resources, if you think about it. Because when I'm with groups of people and, you know, generally with with people who want to improve themselves and maybe they come from a bit of a boxed-in situation. So when they come out, their goal is say, I want to start saying more yes, yes to life, yes to experience. I think there was also some movies about people starting saying yes to everything or to anything. And then they wasn't end up... Jim, wasn't it a Jim Carrey movie? Where he yes, gets- right. Yes, right. That's right. Yeah. And, and they end up having fantastic experiences. This is, I think, one phase that it's good. I think it's some sort of expansion phase, meaning like lateral expansion phase. So an experimenting phase. And it's cool. And it's, I think it's very appropriate to have these kind of phases from time to time when we feel like it. But I think there are other phases in which we want to expand vertically. Like we want to get deep in something. And when we want to get deep in something, we must say no to a lot of things because if we say yes to everything that gets given get, gets in front of us we will get so stretched out so horizontally stretched out that we will never be able to get that deep with anything specifically but if we want to get deeper like for instance in a relationship whatever kind of relationship we want to have with a person could be a friendship could be romantic could be anything else or if we want to get more involved with our immediate family or if we want to get deeper in some technicalities like learning more or like in a sport if we want to get deep 
we must say no to a lot of things, basically anything else that gets thrown our way. So every time we say no in these situations, we are liberating, we are freeing up resources for the thing we want to expand in a vertical fashion. And for instance, when we mentioned about uh, entrepreneurship and still related with this vertical and horizontal concept, when people are passionate about something, they experience this vertical expansion because they become an expert of whatever they are doing. They are passionate. And the term I use, they become artisans. They become very skilled on that specific thing. They know the ins and outs. They can do it with their eyes closed and they're totally absorbed by it. Someone would say it's their ikigai, whatever, but it's something they get deep in. They become artisans in that thing. A lot of people, when they decide to become entrepreneurs, they think that entrepreneurship is about artisanship. So it's like, okay, I'm the artisan of this thing. I know how to do this specific thing very, very well. I will build the business out of it. But in my experience, I always see things. It's not how it, how it works out at the end. Because if you want to build a business out of whatever skill that you might have, very, very soon, you will have to switch from being very skilled at one specific task or one specific craft, you will have to switch to being good at managing people and teach people how to do things. And at that point, you will not be an artisan anymore. You will be an entrepreneur, which is who is a person who manages people and processes to get a financial outcome. This is an entrepreneur, right? And he has not much to do with being very, very, very good at craft or a special skill. And a lot of people, they get disappointed by it because they were like, oh, I was so passionate about doing this thing and building this thing. And now I have a business. I have 10 people. I'm all stretched out with these people. I have conflicts between the people working with me. I have clients, suppliers, the state, the taxes and everything. And at the end of the day, what's the time they actually spend doing what they were super passionate about? Zero, <laughs> most likely. So instead, for instance, if they found a company, an already existing company that could actually employ them to be the super ultra guru of that specific thing, they would have remained artisans. And probably that would have made them much happier than dealing with people and accountants and lawyers and patents and all that. I love this, by the way. I love it that you actually said this because the, the things you said here, like you use words like creativity, artisanship, and, you know, within the financial world, but even just to describe the kind of areas in which you play. And and it's important to see that this, 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 this distinction because I know both of us talk about this 
once in a while we get into these sets of topics where I, I genuinely tell you like the moment I feel like my what I do becomes work I have to stop like I actually just put a full stop on it I'm like this feels like work I'm not trying to say that every moment has to be light in my in what I'm doing mm-hmm. but for me what that means is I've lost connectivity to who I am and we've talked about this podcast as well before right the circumstances of this podcast how it came about i'm probably going to talk about that separately in a solo kind of piece at some point but we talked about this and i said to you i i remember this and i said like i felt like i was moving away from my art and the way i feel things the way i want to do things and the people i want to work around and be surrounded by and the ideas that excite me and the projects that excite me right and i realized that there was a delta between the doing and the feeling and the being i guess like that whole like trajectory of thinking and and building something more consciously right that artisanship is so critical because i think entrepreneurs don't really what i'm seeing sometimes is that they don't really understand how valuable they can be if they were staying true to those things that they have a natural proclivity toward versus now going into this like grind because it does become a grind a business can become a grind and it can be really painful because that's energy ex- exerted uh energy expended and you know the book deep work by Carl Newport he talks just about some concepts that you've actually we're mm-hmm. talking about right now and that deep work work it's cutting out the social stuff it, it it's saying those no's and people not understanding you and being comfortable with it too don't you think yes but also there is a i would call it a call to serve meaning i feel sometimes that the system you know the structure whatever the people around you put you in a position and in my case i feel is a, is a good position is generally a position of responsibility that sometimes i don't want i wouldn't want to be <laughs> responsible <laughs> for all the people i'm responsible for like yesterday i was having this conversation and uh, we were talking about adulting you know basically the acts of being adults and across the table there were different definitions of adulting like what does it mean being an adult and so at the end of the day we came with different levels of adulting and the first level of adulting is basically when you are just responsible about yourself you know just being you know like out of school start living on your own maybe you don't make your own money but you still need to spend it in a sensible way and that's first level adulting <laughs> and uh yeah but and we at the table there were people like 20 years old 20 years old and for them that was the definition of of being adult like uh yeah you need to make you know money you know work for you and uh not overspend and and that and of course we all know that being actually adult is that at some point you have a lot of people depending on you and i think i think one level of adulting is when you actually have a family obviously but i think another total level of adulting is when you are an entrepreneur because it's the same thing but like bigger is like now a lot of people depend on me not just people who are related to me from affection or contractual bonds like marriage but also people that are in your company 
they depend on you, you need to take care of them. And uh, that's also, that's definitely another level of adulting. But coming back to where we were saying, why are you there? Why are you the entrepreneur and not someone else? And sometimes it's because you really, really want it, but it's not really my case, I think. Because I want it, but it's also that the people around you say, mm, that's the position we want you to be mm-hmm. in. Because, 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 I don't know, they think this is a good idea or they think that this is actually the position they want you to be in. So it's some sort of election, but it's not obviously an election, but it's like you're put there to take responsibility, to take some responsibility for other people. And because at the end of the day, if those people didn't trust you as being their boss they would leave they wouldn't work for you right or the business partner who really wants you to come to super high level meetings and you are like why do you need me you don't need me Uh, can i not come it's not important that i come i would prefer to do other things and and they're like no you gotta come you gotta come because if you come then everybody's going to be cool. And it's like, <laughs> why is that? Okay, I, I, I can just, I don't know why, because the real question is not why, it's just accepted. It's like, okay, if he thinks that by me being there, everybody's going to be cool and everybody feels that there is someone in charge, even though I'm not that sure that this is actually <laughs> how I feel in my head. But if everybody thinks that, Let's do it. I mean, I'm there to serve. Yeah. There to help is okay. But by, by being there and making decisions, people is happy. Then this is the role the society and the system puts you in. Yeah. And it's so interesting you brought that up because you can call me whatever you want to call me. Someone can call me a poet. Someone say, hey, she says, hey, she does her own like entrepreneur, whatever name, it's your label. I don't attach meaning to it. And and I always kind of say this thing, which is very maybe contrary and, and still going to say it like, I mean, leadership and all of that is fantastic, but I don't even think about it that way. I think intrinsically the points that I agree with and see myself in a position of it similar to yours, which is the call to serve. And you have to understand that when you're in that position to serve, it's naturally somehow wired in you or it's because of the shift you've had in your lifetime or whatever might be the causation, but this is where you are and that's the place you're operating from. Therefore, you are going to have people who are coming toward you and you really don't have a choice sometimes, right? And that's not a no or yes decision. That's just a part and parcel of that desire in you that's embedded or it's because you've moved forward or you're doing things differently, whatever the case might be, because people are allowed to read into your story the way they want to read into your story. And releasing ourselves from someone else's definition of who we're supposed to be mm-hmm. is probably going to be the most liberating thing we can do as creatives and as people who are putting things into the world and, and trying to kind of step out of the system a little bit without getting like slapped on the wrist or out of our lives, if you will, because things are very interesting these days and then really stepping out of there. I, I just love that you brought that up, by the way, and, and that call to serve is so critical. And I think that's the baseline to do the things that you do because I remember I'd done a talk like a while ago in a room full of young entrepreneurs. And I think there was like 200 people. It was the first time I'd ever spoken in India. 
and I was invited here. And I think the first question I asked was like, I think around how many of you are doing entrepreneurship to make like boatloads of cash? You know, mm-hmm. I'm not even joking. A lot of <laughs> a lot of people had their hands up in the yes. And I think the next thing I said that to them was that it's it's not about the money; it's about what are you solving. And I think even now, when I look at certain things that people create systems around, oh, let's teach entrepreneurship, or let's teach creativity, or let's there's nothing wrong with it. I do think that the version I resonate with is like the more Jack Kerouacy kind of version, where he just went and lived life. He just went and did the on the road thing for real. You know, and, and we talked a little bit about Matthew McConaughey. He just has a book out. And he actually went into a little um, isolated place in the desert and actually wrote that book. Yeah, I think there is a virtuous cycle where people want something from you. They want you to be in a position. If that thing resonates with you, there's going to be a massive virtuous cycle because people, they want you in a position you feel like you can do that, so you start doing it. You become a bit better at it, and people get positive feedback. It's like, okay, we placed him there. He's delivering. Let's you know, help him doing more of what he's doing right now. And you are getting good at it, and you can get even better, and you get more, let's say, responsibility over people, which means serving more people or serving them in a higher value in a higher level in the in the value chain and this is a very very virtuous cycle the problem is that the same thing can happen in the opposite when the system or people put you in a position that doesn't resonate with you that is in conflict with your identity right so they put you in a position where it doesn't work for you it creates massive conflicts in your head And that is key for depression and and total unhappiness and totally being unable to operate. I I don't know if it was Jim Carrey, but probably was just a meme with Jim Carrey on it. But basically it, it said that, you know, depression is where the part you are given is not who you are. So you are forced to play a part that is not you. And this can happen, and it happened to me in the past, maybe more in the personal life, but it can happen. Maybe you think you could be a father, you think you could be a husband, you think that this is something that could work for you. You step in and you find that there's a massive conflict. This doesn't work for you. And it's good to try a little bit, but not try too much because it's so easy when you see that that position that you're given by society or you happen to be resonates with you. It's so easy to see that it resonates with you that if it doesn't, there's not much you can do to make that resonate, you know? And so, and it can bring you massive, massive unhappiness if you keep on doing that and keep on trying to make it work yeah trying to make it work i love that because that's really then going in the opposite direction of what you might be feeling and the decisions you make from that point on are going to be not positive for not just you it could, it could be help you know we know stories of addiction we know stories of you know abuse we know all kinds of things that happen to humans as a result of it and also you know what i think 
I also think that I think some people are just very, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to take care of sensitive people. Yeah. And we need to recognize these people because I identify as that, believe it or not, I do. I can take like the smallest thing and I can make, I can write a novel about it. But I think we have to protect the sensitive people. We really do. We need to surround ourselves and make sure they're nurtured. I don't know if you've seen Amanda Palmer's TED Talk where she talks about the art of asking. And she talks about this concept of letting people help you. And I think that becomes very difficult as you keep moving forward and making those those choices. Like raising your hand and knowing, like, hey, listen, I, it's not about even having your shit together. It's really more about, I'm in this world, I'm in my little vortex of what I do, but I need to breathe a little bit. I need to be around <laughs> around people as well. And I don't know if that plays into that as well. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but I feel that quite a bit. I understand perfectly the feeling because I have seen it to people around me. And uh, we all react very, very differently when we are in a rut, you know? So, you know, for me, I always think I have inside of me all the resources to get out. So what I personally do when I feel that I'm in a corner or I am in a very, you know, narrow position, like a, a pinched old in a role that I don't like, I take stock. So I just stop, do like, okay, so what's the situation right now? What's good? What's bad? What needs to be eliminated? I can go there with a machete and get rid of uh, stuff in my life that are not good. In, But it's, it's mainly a self-preservation mechanism. I think in the past, I was bad at it because I waited for the problems to become suffocating. And so I was eliminating the problems literally, but not really literally, but with a machete. So like, okay, you you're going to be out of my life. I will never have anything to do with you. You're dead to me. That was the situation. That that was the, the modus operandi that I used to have. But I discovered now it is absolutely not necessary to do like that as long as you take stock more often yeah. and yeah. You check. Okay, this is starting brewing in a way that is not funny is not aligned to what I want so let's manage it or let's get rid of it very softly and that's it but it's still a way of I but the way I look at that too is more like you are sitting there and asking yourself what is going on here and then you can raise your hand and say like to the community around you and I'm not talking about just you know whether it's it's filling a position or anything else but it's really giving yourself permission to sit down and ask those deep questions so it can work both ways right and then you come up with the solutions which you have to take stock because I think when you're making decisions that's how it starts right to be really be honest with yourself and then identify what's working what isn't working what needs to be macheted out (laughs) there it goes (laughs) But there is certain things that have to be macheted out if you really want to keep growing and keep moving forward without feeling uncomfort by the, the day-to-day existence of life, if you will, as well. You have to do that. You have to be very decisive. And I think the part that you're talking about is like when you wait till you reach the, the top of that barrel for things to brew and brew and brew before it spills over is the part that you have to be careful about, correct? Yeah, because 
that could create unnecessary pain to other people. So actually, if you want to be, I think, a good person, you would get rid of the things that you don't like sooner than later. And this is something that I think it's a bit tricky for people who are maybe, you know, sensitive or they don't like to hurt other people. They will actually hurt them more because they're not able, again, to say no when it actually doesn't hurt much. But nobody is born with this skill. <laughs> yes, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> it's something that you basically need to live and learn. And actually, one thing that really resonates with me and, and applies to this, you know, to start things, everybody, everybody is able to start things. But to end things in the right way and in the right moment is exactly what makes a huge difference in having an happy content life or not. If you think about it, all the things you stop doing, the timing at which you stop doing and how you stop them had a massive impact on the future, right? It's even more important than when you started them, relationships, right? Everybody's good at starting relationships. I mean, it's easy, very easy. But when you close them or when you transform them, because I think the relationships are transformed, they're not really closed. Even if you don't talk with a person anymore, we, you just transform a relationship into a zero communication relationship, if you think about it, right? So, but even when you, you know, especially with that, how you transform it, terminate, communicate the change is actually the main driver in the meaning of the whole relationship, if you think about it. You know, if you had like two years, very good relationship, and then you end up in a super bad way, the whole meaning of that relationship will be in your mind spoiled yeah. just because the end was bad. That's total waste of humanity and of life, if you think about it. Yeah, we have to leave people hopefully better than where we found them, but we have to also leave people well, right? Yes, but the timing is so important. Yeah, that. don't break up with someone on their birthday. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Or over Christmas. Uh, or over Christmas. I was actually going along those lines first. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think we could all make a bit of uh, introspective work yeah. and thinking of all the things we started and we finished them. And maybe think, could I have ended them in a better way? In hindsight, so without you know blaming anyone, but just thinking, could I have done it better? Because that's a skill. I think, I think that's the skill. Because at the end of the day is, again, the no thing. Mm -hmm. When is the right time to say no more? So the no and the no more, or the no maybe later, 
diversions <laughs> across yeah. the world. Now, I was going to ask you, what are your favorite books? Because you obviously are not just, this is why we connect, right? Because we can like probably talk for hours. But I think there's clearly like an aspect of critical thinking that you embody. And perhaps the chosen field of work, initially at least for you, has, has allowed for it too, because it's just finesse that sense within you or, you know, just your, your cerebral wiring probably became even more in tune to the way you make decisions. Clearly it comes from some kind of, you know, books. I, I feel like really I boil everything down to that. I was like, what do you read? How do you think? Tell me what you read and who you are and where you've been. Well, let's say that I like to read. I would like to read more than I do, even though I read quite a bit. And um, let's say that maybe to, to reply to your question, there are a couple of books that I use as reference when the tough gets going. One is a book about stoicism. It's uh, basically a collection. You know, basically stoicism is a philosophy that was basically embraced by few philosophers or writers, authors, during the years. So you can have, you know, Seneca, like more than 2000 years ago, but you can also have Montaigne in the 1600s, actually 1500s, or you can have Schopenhauer in the 1800s. Nietzsche is not considered a Stoic, but there is some, you know, some things that can be uh, considered as aligned to, to Stoicism. So when I feel overwhelmed, I go back to that book. I will tell you the exact name. Could be the Daily Stoic. Yeah. But basically, I go back to it. It talks about fame, money, the judgment of others, uh, resilience in face of adversity. So, for instance, even when I'm in a conflict with maybe a business partner or stuff like that, I go back to it, get back to the perspective and try to see things from the distance and actually realizing that whatever overwhelms me or worries me, it's actually not that important. And this gives me calm. The thought that whatever we do, yes, it's consequential. Yes, it has some impact, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have that much of an impact because we don't matter that much. Actually, I don't think we, we matter at all in the big scheme of things. We matter on our immediate circle. So this is why we should try to have a, a positive impact. But also there is this idea that we don't matter that much. On a grand scale, we definitely don't matter. So I shouldn't lose my sleep over some wording in a shareholder agreement, let's say, for instance, right? Yeah. I think someone very close to uh, would say something to me. And I, I, I always found like project managers, engineers, rocket scientists, just very fascinating and how they make decisions. And I asked someone, I was, I'm so close to, of course, and I asked him like, so how do you do this thing? Like, how do you stay in this brain space? Because obviously conflict, there's conflict, there's decision-making, there's analyzing the full scenario. And he, he said to me, he's like, I just look at things in a context of like, is this important over a five-year period? Yeah. You know, he said that to me. And I, I found that even just like a line like that. So I think about 
before I shoot off that email, <laughs> that's very direct, or do whatever, you know, where I have that impulse to quickly get it out of the way, just really breathe through it and just take a moment and ask that question, whether it's the five-year question or to what you're pointing, like the grand insignificance of who we are and not really taking too much too seriously and not taking too much with rampant levity, if you will. So just, it's not even finding a middle ground, to be honest. It's more about keeping that perspective healthy more than anything else. Yeah, I totally agree on that. Uh, keeping perspective. Also, when you read like a thought that comforts me a lot and to reinforce it is very useful to read books written like centuries ago, is that whatever problem we have right now, whatever challenge we have, it's not unique. It's not special. It's not something that thousands of humans have experienced. I would say that thousands of humans are experiencing right now and millions of humans have experienced in the history of humanity. So whatever we are going through is not special. And plenty of people faced it. Plenty of people went through it. Plenty of people were destroyed by it. So nothing that we can't actually deal with. And when you read like another favorite book of mine is by Montaigne called Essays, uh, written in 1500s. You know, Montaigne is basically considered the first modern author. Uh, Shakespeare is the first modern author in theater. And Montaigne is considered the first modern author in uh, essay format, in prose, right? Um, why? Because basically they are the first guys that were actually able to figure out that we have in our head multiple drives, multiple, I don't know, we can say personalities or my, multiple forces. They are all inside our head. You know, they are the first one who don't say is the gods. They don't say is good and evil. They say it's us. It's in our head. It's just us. We have this conflict. It's normal to have this conflict. We have it and we need to deal with it. So Montaigne writes about his daily life, things that happen to him, but it's so modern and uh, so applicable to everyday life. It's crazy because it's like, okay, this guy lived 500 years ago and it's completely applicable to things happening to us. And actually, he was also working from home. <laughs> like, like, uh, he, like probably, he probably went through a pandemic too. <laughs> he was working from home. And actually, he was saying that uh, you need to have a room, segregated room. He had a tower, actually, in this castle. But basically, he said, in that tower, I have my books, I have my things, I have my you know, desk, and I can write things. And this must be separate from the rest of the home, yeah. especially from uh, the wife in his case, but you know, <laughs> that's what he wanted, but it's like separate and uh, he has his, he needs to have his own uh, space. So it, as you can see, even in that is uh, super, super, uh, super, super modern. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you forever. 
I have one question broken in two parts. What, say it's similar, okay? So the first question is, for anything that's on your mind that you'd like to share with us, and I'd love for you to share, you speaking in Italian, a favorite quote of yours. Favorite quote in Italian? Yeah, what is a favorite quote in Italian? And the second one is, what message would you leave our listeners with? Do the Italian first, though. Well, well, yes. I'm, I'm, <laughs> let, me switch, let me switch my brain one moment. And, and please make sure you translate. The query in Italian is l'uomo che non ha paura di niente è libero. It means that the man that is not afraid of anything is free. And as a final thought, at the end of the day, we need to realize that it's true that we want to have impact on other people. It's true that we have expectation set up on us. It's true that some of us can be competitive, some of us can be less competitive. But at the end of the day, the journey we make, we make it alone. And we are, at the end of the day, completely free to do whatever we want with our time and with our life. There's nobody really judging us. Maybe they are, but at the end of the day, in the big big picture nobody cares and nobody will care and there will be no record of what we do or what we don't do and even if we grow up in a family where we have a lot of expectation put on us or if we have some people who say if you do that it's bad or it's good nothing really matters and this is the destructive part but then And if you want to read something about it, Schopenhauer is actually the guy talking about this. It's like, how do you make sense of life considering that nothing really matters? And I think the answer to this question is what defines you. That's it. That's the only question that matters is what meaning do you want to put on your life? knowing that there is absolute no meaning to it. I love that. <laughs> I was um, prepared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounded amazing. Well, Antonio, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for letting me talk a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who's listening, every time Antonio and I speak, I'm doing most of the speaking. That's why I said that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good. So anybody who wants to look Antonio up will have all his details in the show notes. But you can go to AntonioDelGiriche.com and let us know how you felt about everything he shared. Obviously, he's come from so much knowledge and wisdom he's acquired over the years. But to be able to contextualize it for us in any walk of life we're in right now, I know you will find value. And yeah, let us know how this felt for you. And Antonio, the next time you're here, I might, uh, I might start the interview in Italian. Hey now. Well, well, yeah, that, that, would, that would be an idea. That would be an idea for sure. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Neelam. Thanks so much for stopping by Words and Voices with Neelam Tawar. We can't wait to see you again with another voice and more words from game changers, movers and shakers, and quiet visionaries creating a dent in the world. Oh, and please don't forget to comment and share what resonated with you here or on info at neelamtawar.com. Till we meet next, and as Neelam says, be good to you.